Uh, my name is Steve, in case you don't know me. Uh, hey, good to see you. Uh, today, we're going to be reading uh, from Exodus chapter 24, starting in verse 7. Real quick. How far can I go? I don't even know. Where, where's my... Okay, good. All right, anywhere, anywhere I can walk. All right, thank you. Exodus 24, verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you've been with us, uh, you'll know that we've been preaching through the entire Bible. We started with Genesis. We're going to be going all the way through the end. In addition to reading it together, we'll also be preaching it uh, as we go along. And today we come to what is, in my opinion, perhaps simultaneously Israel's highest moment and their lowest moment at the very same time. And we find those moments scattered throughout Exodus chapter 20 through Exodus chapter 32. So there's a lot there. Buckle up. We have no time to waste. Now, in order to get into this section, let me remind you of the story thus far that we've covered in the book of Exodus. The book opens with God's chosen people, the, the children of Abraham, and they are slaves in Egypt, a nation of slaves. And under their oppressors, they cry out for help to the Lord and he hears them and he raises up a deliverer named Moses. And Moses comes into the land and with great works of power by the Lord God Almighty brings the people out into the wilderness. Pharaoh finally lets them go because he cannot bear the judgment of God any longer. But then Pharaoh changes his mind and he pursues them with his military and then God fights for his people and routs the Egyptians. And now they are free in the wilderness. And then by means of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, God leads his people to Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 19, he gives them their identity and their vocation. Just listen. The Lord called to him, Moses, out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, listen, listen, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, think of that. A nation of slaves with no power, no status in the eyes of the world, the Lord fights for them, brings them out of their slavery, and then proclaims, you shall be my treasured possession among all the nations. And as my treasured possession, he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's astonishing. It's, it, it's altogether undeserved. The Lord of all the earth, the creator, the one who flung the stars into the sky, 
who sustains everything at every waking moment, sets his covenant love on these people. But there is a condition. Did you hear it? There's a condition. The condition is that the people, in verse 5, he says, you must indeed obey my voice. If you obey my voice, then you will be my treasured possession. Now, what is it that they must obey? What's the content of their obedience in order to be involved in this covenant relationship with the Lord their God? Well, that's what we see in Exodus chapter 20. In the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Lord speaks to them through Moses and says, if you'll be my treasured possession, right, Exodus 19, if you'll be my treasured possession, my kingdom of priests, my holy nation, then here's what you must do. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord, the God, my, your God, in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. And you can't, like, you can't imagine the giving of that law like a, um, like a, like a DMV worker, like, ta talking to a bunch of student drivers, like, well, you know, you can, if you're going to turn, you need to turn your turn signal on, and you can go right at a red light, but you cannot go left. And this is like, no, there's, there's power in the recitation of this law. Like, listen, um, in, in the very following verses, after we get the Ten Commandments, verse 18 through 21, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you might not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Like in the, in the giving of these Ten Commandments, the voice of God was filled with such power that they stuffed their ears and said, we don't ever want to hear that voice again. It terrifies us. But nevertheless, that is the content of the covenant. When he says, if you will obey me, you will be my treasure possession, what do we do? What do we obey? There you go, Ten Commandments. That's the content of the covenant. These are the words they must keep. Now, let me just stop for a moment and describe to you what we're witnessing here in Exodus chapter 20 and 19. What we're witnessing is a covenant ceremony. And when we hear the word covenant, we immediately, if you've been in church for any number of years at all, we immediately think that's a biblical word. It's not a biblical word originally. Covenants were made all the time uh, in the ancient world. And it was a very common practice. And I've preached on this before, so I'm just going to keep it brief. Because uh, obviously you remember it. It's been a couple of years. Clearly you remember it. Um, I, I hardly remember it. But uh, <laughs> one of the most common types of covenants in the, old, uh, in the ancient world was known as a suzerain-vassal treaty. Suzerain-vassal. 
Let me explain what that covenant relationship looked like. The suzerain in the ancient world was the powerful party. The vassal was the weaker party. And this kind of covenant is specifically um, there for unequal partners. So, for example, during the time of the earliest civilizations, um, like a little tribe left to itself wouldn't fare very well. So several tribes often joined together into a confederation, but even then they were still no match for the larger armies of the greater civilizations and the city-based civilizations. And so what they would do is the leader of this little confederation would approach a, uh, uh, the king or the suzerain of a city or a larger civilization and say, we need your protection. Will you protect us? And they would enter into a suzerain-vassal treaty. And then the federation of tribes became the subjects of the king who would then come to their defense when necessary. We follow so far? We're good? Okay. Now, the really important thing to know about a suzerain-vassal treaty is that at its heart, it is a conditional covenant. The kind of treaty that we're talking about says, do these things and our relationship remains firm. Break these things and the relationship is over and you have forfeited your protection. And furthermore, in this kind of covenant, while the strong party did offer protection to the weaker party, listen, the full responsibility, the full responsibility for maintaining the relationship fell squarely on the shoulders of the weaker party. Okay, so what we're witnessing here in, in Exodus chapter 20 is the Lord saying to his people essentially this, I am offering you the greatest opportunity ever afforded to a people. I will be your suzerain. And as such, I will fight for you and I will keep you safe. And I will cast your enemies to the ground. And even more than that, you will be the recipients of the blessing of God. Like, this is, these are the terms. This is what's on the table. And God is no regional deity whose power leaves every time you cross the national boundary. He is the God of all the earth, strong, mighty, in his own words, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he says, in order to remain in my protection, you must keep this law. And the responsibility for maintaining my protection falls squarely on your shoulders. And if you had been there, and if I had been there, and we had just witnessed the astonishing miracles as God brought his people out of Egypt, as he fed them in the wilderness, we just read water out of a rock. If you had seen all of these things, then we would say with them, of course we will keep your law. Where else can you find such a God of power and kindness? And that's essentially what the Israelites say in chapter 24. Starting in verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will 
do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it into the base, into, put it in basins and half the blood and threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, again, listen, they're repeating themselves. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the people affirm, like from the bottom of their hearts, we will do it. We will do it. They affirm it twice. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And then to further seal this covenant, sacrificial animals are killed. And this, again, was a common practice for the sealing of a covenant. Um, And the most dramatic part of the ceremony usually culminated in the killing of several animals and the arranging of their pieces, their severed halves uh, in a row. And the two members of the covenant would walk through the bloody aisle. And the idea there was that both parties were affirming to each other that if, if I break our side of the covenant, may this be what happens to it, to me. And the other party is is also likewise affirming, if I break my side of the covenant, may this be what happens to me. So that's what we're seeing here in Exodus 24. The people affirm with great solemnity that they will keep their end of the covenant. And so Moses has animals killed. He throws half the blood on the altar. And he throws the other half of the blood on the people. And so now you have the whole picture the people of God standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they have the blood of the sacrificial animals upon them. And they stand up and they say, we will keep this covenant. And if we don't, may the blood of the covenant that is now upon us be our blood. And the Lord is saying the same thing. Right? Moses didn't only throw blood on the people, he threw blood on the altar. And, and by that gesture, it is the Lord saying, if I break my side of the covenant, may this be my blood. And then, after every ancient covenant ceremony, there was a meal of great rejoicing. And when you know it, that's the next thing that happens in verse 9. Um, then Moses and Aaron... Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up to the mountain, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Listen, they beheld God and ate and drank. That that is unbelievable. 
I mean, remember what the people said just like four chapters ago. Like, the voice of God terrifies us. We never want to hear it again. And now, in the sealing of the covenant, with the blood of the elders of Israel, excuse me, the, the sealing of the covenant with blood, the elders of Israel are now dining in the presence of God. What this is telling us is that they are entering in this, into the most magnificent gift of the covenant, which is communion with God. There is no greater gift than that for a human being, communion with God himself. It was the gift that Adam and Eve had in the garden to walk with God, to converse with him in the cool of the day and to know him. It was the gift that they lost so long ago in their ejection from the garden. And here, the restoration of that gift has been achieved. They beheld God and they ate and they drank. <laughs> so after the meal was over, the elders return to the foot of the mountain and the Lord called Moses back up to the mountain in order to receive the law. And, and in this round of being with God on top of the mountain, God said, I will write the very substance of the law upon tablets of stone. And so the chapter ends by telling us that Moses was there in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. And it is during that 40 days and 40 nights that tragedy arrives. And just let me read it to you from Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, brother of Moses, priest of Israel, and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not even know what has become of him. And the people grow impatient. Like they can see the fire on the mountaintop. And, and how do they know that Moses hasn't been killed up there? They don't know. They, they weren't told, like, I'll be back in 40 days. They don't know how long he'll be up there. And so those same people who stood with the blood of the covenant upon them and affirmed with great solemnity all that the Lord has said we will do, decide that they have had enough waiting. They want another God. And so this desire, if, if it was left to go into reality, would of course break the covenant because the covenant, the first law of the covenant is you shall have no other gods before me. The second law of the covenant is you shall make no idols. But don't worry, Aaron is there. <laughs> the chief priest of the people one of the 70 who was on the mountain and ate and drank in the presence of God, he's there. Surely Aaron is going to say to them, remember, remember who the Lord is. All, all that he has done for you, remember that you are his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Turn from this desire. 
but that's not what he did. Starting in verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Like, can you imagine a greater tragedy? I mean, it'll, it'll break your heart if you really let it in. And so, meanwhile, up on the mountain, the Lord speaks to Moses, starting in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. And listen, this is exactly what you would expect if one party broke their side of the covenant. This is the justice coming in. When the people stood with the blood of the covenant upon them and affirmed all that the Lord has spoken, we will obey, this is what they agreed to. If we break our commitment, then may the Lord visit us in wrath and consume us. It's only fair. It's only just. And this is what we see God saying. His solution is to destroy all the people and fashion a new nation out of Moses, the faithful one. Now watch what happens, starting in verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's the noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near to the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. 
He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So when Moses descends from the mountain and sees the people dancing like madmen in front of these two golden calves that they have made, he throws down the two tablets of stone on which God himself had written the law And in the shattering of those stones, we see clearly that the covenant itself and all the hope of the people's communion with God has been shattered right along with it. Moses destroys the golden calf. And this happens, the the breaking of the covenant happens before Moses is even down from the mountain. It's astonishing. And then what happens next is nothing short of amazing. Verse 30, still in Exodus 32. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now... If you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague upon the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. Now, I don't know if you caught all of that. There's a lot going on there, but let's just go slow, make sure we're getting it. Moses tells the people, perhaps... I can go onto the mountain and make atonement for your sin and the Lord will not destroy you. Like, there's no, the the perhaps is real. There's no legal or rational reason why God should relent. He's promised disaster upon the people. They have taken that condition upon them and said, yes, bring disaster upon us if we break the covenant. So there's no reason he should relent, but this is what I love. Moses knows the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement. And how does he do it? He implores the Lord to forgive them. And then, don't miss this, Moses says to the Lord, but if you will not forgive them, then kill me right along with them. I'm not interested in an arrangement, Moses says, where you kill the people and you start new with me. These are my people. I am with them. If you blot their names out of the book, you blot my name out of the book. In other words, Moses says, I have not participated in their sin. I have not broken the covenant. Moses is on the mountain when all this was going on. But they are my people, and I will die. I will identify myself with them, and I will die for their sin. And what does the Lord do with Moses' request? He says, 
no. I will not lay their sin upon you. You cannot die for them and with them. That way of atonement is not available to you, Moses. And so the Lord relented and only brought judgment upon some of the congregation instead of upon, upon all of them, which is what they deserved. So that's the story. And what are we to do with all this? Well, I think it's clear that if we're going to identify with anybody in this story, it's the people of Israel. Like how often has the Lord visited us Like, how often has the Lord shown his kindness to us? And in our profound gratitude for such movements toward us, for such communion with God, we say from the bottom of our hearts, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yes. How often have we fallen into sin and like destructive idolatry and looked back and seen the path of destruction that lies behind us and resolved in our hearts never again, never. But there is always an again, always. God says to Moses that they are a stiff-necked people. And this is a reference to like a farm animal who's undergoing domestication and stubbornly refuses to accept the yoke upon its neck. It will not be brought under submission. It will not do what it ought to do. It goes its own way. It is stiff-necked. If we're being honest with ourselves, we are of all people. We know ourselves. We are of all people the most stiff-necked. How many wonders has God wrought on our behalf? How many mercies, how many kindnesses, and yet we throw off the yoke of obedience and dance like madmen in the valley. And so the question that we have to contend with is this. Is there any hope for people like us? We who have broken the covenant of God more times than we can number, is there any hope? And the answer is yes. You see, when Moses offered to die for his people, the Lord would not allow it. You are not the man for the job, God told Moses. I will not blot your name out of my book. But many years later, another Moses was up upon a mountain in the midst of an olive grove, praying with such earnestness and sorrow that great drops of blood began to mix with his sweat. And he said, let this cup pass from me. And Jesus Christ looked into the cup of God's judgment for the breaking of the covenant, which ought to have been poured out on all of humankind. And here it was concentrated into like one metaphorical chalice. And none of us can blame him for requesting that it might pass from him. But then he utters those most blessed of words, yet not my will, but yours be done. In other words, if it pleases you, Father, blot my name out of your book so that your judgment may not fall upon them but upon me. And this time, God responded and said, 
you're the man for the job. Moses said, let me drink this cup of judgment with your people. God said, no. Our Lord Jesus asked the Lord, shall I drink the cup instead of them? And the Lord said, yes. And so Jesus Christ, the embodiment of God himself, walked down that mountainside and was crucified. All the generations of broken covenants, all the generations of sin and iniquity, all the blood that should have been drawn from the breakers of the covenant flowed from the crushed body of the keeper of the covenant. And there is no perhaps in that atonement. It is sure Moses wondered, can I possibly make atonement for them? Will God possibly forgive them for this grievous sin? And in Jesus Christ, there is no perhaps. It is always yes and amen. And so when we behold Jesus Christ crucified, we see our hope. Our sin has been atoned for in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For the briefest of moments, his name was blotted out of God's book in the crucifixion so that ours could never be. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters of God, our only hope is in the mercy of God. We ourselves cannot keep covenant, but Jesus kept it for us. And his obedience and sacrifice can never be taken from us. Amen? And that leads us to the blessed table of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Moses and the elders went up to the mountain and beheld God and ate and drank in his presence, so we have a covenant meal in our midst where we come to celebrate this new avenue of communion with God that has been opened to us in Jesus Christ. None of us has deserved it. And yet, here is the mercy of God for a stiff-necked people. And so because that mercy is our only hope, eat and remember the broken body of Christ. Drink and remember the blood of the covenant shed and then do the only rational thing, which is to praise the mercy of God. So you have the elements on your, on your chairs. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ.